Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low carbon, high energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS. I am your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Alex Campbell. Alex is a development manager at Hecate Energy. Hecate Energy is a developer, owner, and operator of renewable and clean power projects and storage solutions in the United States. Now, Alex and I go, go back to to Iceland, actually, where we studied at the School for Renewable Energy Science. So, Alex, can you give me and our listeners a little bit more of a background, what you've been doing since 2010, and a little bit more of a background on Hecate Energy? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, Good morning, and thanks for inviting me to the podcast, and really happy to be here. Um, as you mentioned, we, we go back almost, well, I guess more than 10 years now when we met, um, in Iceland and I had been previously working in the advertising industry as an account manager and, and always had an itch to, um, go back to my engineering and environmental engineering roots with clean energy development. Um, and it was hard getting real credit from prospective jobs and employers as in a guy who was managing Nivea body lotion ad campaigns. Why would this guy want to be in a wind field or a solar development field or geothermal or renewables? So the, the transition for me was um, going through the master's program in Iceland um, which was a combination of policy and and systems and and engineering, um, and that that moved me into an IPP based in New York called Scythe Global. Um, I was a you know low low man on the on the on the pole there as a financial analyst, um, but it was a Blackstone portfolio company, and we 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 did very large scale international development projects focused on. Um, hydro and and natural gas power plants. Um, after after I was at Scythe Global, I moved to a company more based in the Icelandic roots called Reykjavik Geothermal, which had a similar mandate to Scythe Global of developing projects in emerging markets at scale with very large um, equity checks and 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 in difficult areas. Um, there we worked in, in Africa, South Asia, and in the Caribbean. And um, geothermal is very unique, especially uh, when you speak about the oil and gas network. There's a, a lot of, of commonalities 
Um, and it's very complicated from a power systems perspective because you basically have three very complex power projects and infrastructure projects all in one. You have the oil and gas effort that takes place on the front end, the collection system, which acts similar to a natural gas pipeline in the middle, and then your steam power plant on the back end. So those projects are very long. They're very important and incredible because of their base load capacity and, and, and zero emissions. Well, next to zero emissions. Um, but they're just, they take a very long time. Uh, subsequent to that, I, I moved to a small scale hydropower company based in, in San Francisco, uh, where they, they owned their own IP for a turbine. And there was a development group at that company where, where I sat and that company was called Natel Energy. And they have really unique investors, um, Breakthrough Energy, a number of very, very prominent family offices, and spent a lot of time working through the U.S. hydro market, which is unique. You know, 25% of our power roughly comes from hydropower throughout the United States. Um, and there's a huge, huge opportunity set for small-scale hydro. However, the time it takes to build a 50 kilowatt hydro system is comparable to what it would take to build a 500 megawatt solar project. So, you know, the time spent is, is challenging and, and a difficult problem to solve um, because of the permitting regimes that are in the United States. Um, and as, as Joe, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm, I currently work at, at Hecate Energy, which is a, a very large solar and storage developer in the United States. Um, right now we have about 14 gigawatts of, of projects and interconnection queues across the United States. And um, I focus in the Northeast region with our North New York portfolio. And Hecate's, Hecate's main sweet spot is um, very large projects that tie into um, high voltage connection system, interconnection systems. Uh, so, you know, we, we, the company's based in Chicago, um, but we have a number of developers like myself that are all over the U S. So that's uh that's, that's an interesting thing. You say that the, the very large scale power is Hecate's sweet spot. I, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was looking at all the different projects that, that Hecate does and you have quite a few projects and they range anywhere from one megawatt all the way up to this very large scale, 500, 600 megawatt size. So I'm curious what is, if, if your sweet spot are these, these larger scale projects, why would you work on something that's say one megawatt and, and what really determines and drives that the factors on determining the size of a project. Yeah. So the, just, just a, a bit of historic contents for heck for Hecate. Hecate was formed in 2012 and the company has evolved over the past almost 10 years. Um, it's, it's recently found this sweet spot of, you know, 100, 200 plus megawatt projects for solar 
as where it can differentiate itself in the market. And it, it took some time. And I think, I think in the, in the early, early years of Hecate and certainly at that period of time in the solar industry in the United States, a one to five megawatt project made a lot of sense and was, was, was still fairly avant-garde at that time. Um, whereas now in order to, um, keep up with the market demand, this is where Hecate can thrive because, um, it's, it has the experience it, it it's worked in, in the industry domestically for quite some time now and is able to adapt to what the market wants. And that that's, that's the differentiating factor here. We're seeing, you know, corporate customers coming to us and and saying, "Hey, if you guys can deliver 500 megawatts to this power node, we'll buy all of that power and its capacity and its re- and its its renewable uh, energy certificate or or, or rec um, at this price." So it's kind of like a hunting license. So you're not seeing it necessarily from the utilities, but the Corporate customers are the ones that are really driving this this rapid scaling of of solar power development. Yeah, that's really interesting, and that's something that that I've been hearing a lot is that it it's not it's more customer based. They are saying this is what we want, and this is how we're going to get it, and. And instead of waiting for utilities or regulations to come around, everything's being pushed immediately by the market. So when we talk about something like a a customer coming to you saying, we want X number of megawatts of clean, renewable energy, how does that, because I see you guys are also in storage, how how do you make that balance of how much storage you need compared to how many megawatts you're you're installing so just just to be clear on the storage front um hecate grid operates as a sister company to hecate energy uh hecate grid hecate grid has its own investor set um and the hecate energy and hecate grid complement each other where, where, where it makes sense. Um, but right now we don't have any projects that are, um, Hecate energy with its own storage underneath. Um, typically a solar project would, would be developed and then we'll see if it makes sense from a storage perspective. And then there's a separate team that would analyze that work. But as far as the, the, you know, the megawatt hours from the solar, and the the firm capacity that could be provided from from storage whether or not the customer wants that or not we generally have not seen that type of request come through thus far Um, i'm not saying it has not happened it has but generally the request is give us a bid for an amount of gigawatt hours you can provide over you know a period of time, which would be negotiated in that contract. Um, and the, the storage side of it, luckily for the, those in the United States is not totally necessary for what these corporate customers 
typically need because they are connected to the grid. Um, the storage projects that tend to work well for any storage company, and, and that includes Hecate Grid, is pro are projects that are located very, very close to incredible congestion, incredible demand, and, and pull, um, but with limited supply. So those are just big cities or areas that have um, weather constraints or challenging environments to live in, so deserts. So the, 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 the ensuite package of solar plus storage is very romantic, um, but with large utility scale corporate customers that, you know, really are just drive, trying to drive their renewable energy corporate goals, um, we're not seeing a ton of the ensuite, you know, one-stop shop, let's go, let's go off-grid option. Um, and that's for, that's for a very different set of set of developers and investors too. Hmm. Yeah. Whenever you hear about, about solar plus storage, it is, especially me coming from the geothermal side, that is, that is something that, that is hard for that comparison because geothermal is a, a baseload energy. As you've pointed out, there are, there are issues. There is a, a long lead time. It is expensive to finally get those first electrons onto the grid. But then once those are on, it's pretty much on all the time. And so we always talk about, well, really, we would be comparable to solar plus storage. But I guess that doesn't, sounds like that isn't really a, a common product on the energy market today. It's still, it's still fairly new. You know, keep in mind, in the United States, our, our entire grid system is still in the low single digits for solar, right? So, so like, if you think about the, the big macro picture of where we are, we have a, a very strong hydro base, which I mentioned earlier. We have a, a growing, rapidly, wind and solar base. But collectively, we're, we're still very low, comparatively speaking, in other markets of the world, in our renewable adoption. So one of the things that Jesse Jenkins from, um, um, I believe it's Stanford, um, he's, a, he's a pretty pretty prolific energy modeler, and um, he's, he's been a, a, a rapid... Um, sorry, Jesse Jenkins from Princeton. So he, he talks about how the adoption of renewables to 100% is, is doable, generally. Um, the, the challenging part is when we get to 80% renewables. That's when you'll see much more storage on, on our grid. Right now, we are so blessed in the United States because unlike some very outlier some very unique outlier events, like I think you're in Texas, right? I think you you know yes, yes, you February. know yeah you know more than anybody. Um, you know these outlier events occur, but but the vast vast majority of the time, our grid is so reliable. So we're 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 not yet at that point, that inflection point of needing 
these these very important storage solutions to manage our grid where we have a a, a deep deep renewable bench of power generation to support it um, you know generally we still have much of our power comes from on-demand fossil fuel generation which can be ramped in a very short period of time so it's it's not it's not quite there yet it will get there um, because the market is driving renewables as I mentioned economics are driving renewables um, and over time these assets that are generating power with fossil fuels um, will, will, will be retired and we'll continue to see the proliferation of renewables. Um, and th at that point, you'll start seeing much, much more storage. So I'm curious, as we, as we, we push that, what you were saying is demand and economics are what's driving that. Mm -hmm. To me, hitting that 80% and just dealing with the, the variable nature of things like solar and wind, what, what is it going to take to overcome that aspect of, of these more prolific known, uh, renewable energies that, that are, they have significant growth. You they are still single digits in our electricity grid, but they're they're popping up everywhere. And if you look at the trends of how wind and solar are growing compared to say hydro or geothermal, they they look like they're exponential. But as if that's all we're putting on the grid, what happens once we are at say 50, 60, 70 percent solar and wind on the grid? How do we actually overcome that? that variable nature i think the the i i would say lessons but but also just general knowledge that i've gleaned from the breakthrough energy group through breakthrough energy ventures is that we need to utilize and develop every kind of technology we can possibly imagine so some things like solar are as straightforward as it gets, right? And let's just, and wind, let's just do everything we can to put as much geo or, or solar and wind on the grid as possible. Because it's a gargantuan effort, by the way, to get to the numbers that you just described, let alone 80%, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then outside of that, we need to do all of these innovative technological advancements, developments, innovations um, to reach this point where we're able to have storage solutions, where we're able to transmit power over incredible lengths to get from areas that need it to those that, that have it. Um, and so just anything and everything you can imagine is what we need to do. So there's a, a number of different storage options and technologies that are coming onto the market that help supplement and, and co well, complement lithium-ion battery storage that are much more long-term long duration and, and are able to utilize materials that are not quite as difficult to, to mine or procure like lithium is. Even though lithium is a incredibly abundant earth element it's 
it's not as easy as, you know, putting a bucket in the river and getting water, right? It takes a lot of time and energy to, to get it. So um, we really just need to, to, to innovate and, and rapidly scale when those innovations become commercial. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point that it really isn't a, because everybody's always been looking for that silver bullet when it comes to something like decarbonization. People say, oh, well, we can, we can sequester all the carbon in the subsurface. But that doesn't, that's a lot of carbon to try and shove into the ground. And, and then other ideas like we'll put solar panels on every single house. But then you've got the problem of peak demand is actually when the sun is dropping and when you start losing that on-demand solar power. So I think it, that's one thing that I've been really excited about is, is just the idea of load forecasting and, as you're pointing out, the technologies to transmit power from, say, West Texas, where we have lots of wind. How do you get that all the way to Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, Houston, and actually be able to utilize that power in, in more useful ways? So one thing I wanted to, to talk about since we're kind of on the topic of growing exponentially, you guys have had a recent announcement that you had a large investment from Repsol. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, In the, uh, I think it was the second quarter of this year, uh, Repsol became a a forty percent owner in Hecate Energy, um, and Hecate Energy is 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 the the entity that that operates our our U.S. development portfolio, and it was over a, a quite a long period of time to in finding Repsol through our, our financial advisor and and just you know tremendous amount of work from the management team to, to get this deal done. Um, but I think the unique thing that this investment shows and that other investments from big oil majors or sovereign oil companies into renewables is the, the market pull that I mentioned earlier. There's, there's just a, a massive, massive pull from the market to get more renewables and also and and by market i i don't i, I don't just mean that term generically we're, we're we're talking about customers we're talking about shareholders of those companies like repsol and we're also talking about the investor community that ends up putting money into these projects so across all of those market sectors there is a a drive for clean renewable and 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 really markets market differentiation um, power sorry sorry clean renewable power and market segmentation and differentiation is 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 what these oil groups are are I think looking at so Repsol's investment is is not an isolated one from an oil and gas company into a a renewable power company um, you're seeing this with um, 
you know, the, the big Norwegian stat oil, uh, which I'm sure you're, you're well aware of their work in renewables and offshore wind, which is incredibly complementary, and is this huge opportunity set for them um, with their offshore oil, oil and, and gas experience. Um, but Repsol wants to be in the U.S. market because the U.S. market is growing rapidly for renewables, primarily because of the, the corporate demand that I mentioned. We have states like California, New York, Oregon, Washington, uh, Maryland that have established some, some very aggressive renewable portfolio standards and targets for themselves. Um, New York, where, where I live, has the most aggressive um, uh, renewable law in place called the CLCPA. Um, and, you know, the, the CLCPA um, is a, a, a set of goals that were established in, I think, 2019, um, which, it, sorry, CL, CLCPA means the Climate and Community Leaders Protection Act. And it, it aims to reduce emissions to 40% below 1990 levels um, and get to 100% clean energy by 20, 2040. So it's a it's a huge huge law that's in place, and I think other states will will start to align with these types of laws too. But Repsol sees these big momentous events in the U.S. market as a, an incentive to come here and and put money to work, um, and it also sees the returns that these projects generate as favorable, and recognizes I think also that. All of the money they spend on oil and gas exploration has become a somewhat of a stranded asset in in a lot of ways, and so there, there's there's excess funds that that may be able to be used in investment opportunities like what they've done with Hecate Energy. So the I just want to go back to this CLCPA. You said. The the goals are to reduce emissions by to forty percent of nineteen ninety levels and one hundred percent clean energy by twenty forty. So reduce emissions to forty percent below nineteen ninety levels by twenty thirty, and then eighty five percent below nineteen ninety levels by twenty fifty. Now the the renewable energy goals that align with that are 70% clean energy by 2030 and 100% by 2040. So it's a lot of numbers, it's a lot of stuff, <laughs> but basically it, it is the most aggressive U.S. law that is in place right now that is not just a goal. And it, it covers the most broad set of, of uh, emission reduction technologies and sectors. It's not just renewable energy. It's EV. It's it's cement. You know everything you can think of is is a part of this mm -hmm. this CLCPI. Yep. Yeah, and I think it's it it's really interesting bringing that up now while we're talking about Repsol because it one thing that I've I've thought about is as Places like California are are not allowing natural gas in new homes. 
with things like the CLCPA in New York, basically making making the investment as you as you put it, investing into oil and gas ends up being a stranded resource. These are investing into clean renewable energies is a way that somebody like Repsol can still be in a market like New York and even a way to to maybe expand through this through this I hate to say it energy transition it's a very overused term right now but as we shift the the energy we're producing people like Repsol other oil and gas majors can find can find ways to grow through that that shifting market absolutely you know my my um i would call i I, yeah no i i i I can call him my idol uh jigger shaw is the current director of the loan program office at the doe he he was originally a, a a bp guy uh he he went on to have a an incredibly storied career where his last his last seat was as a founder of Generate Capital, which is a sustainable infrastructure investment firm. And one of the things that he always talks about is how we should not forget how rich of a human capital base oil and gas companies have that could support renewables. So, you know, Chevron, for example, has such a huge opportunity to become the best geothermal power company in the world. They have all of the geophysicists, all of the geochemists, incredible geologists that could fairly quickly transfer into a, a geothermal focus. Um, and oil and gas companies have um, a, a number of different uh, sets of skills through their human capital that would absolutely help them transition into a, a different business model, really, um, but one that could support them and not, um, well, support them and help them grow, and 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 not not strand them, <laughs> and 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 become a relic of of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that is a big a big theme with the with the idea of of the energy transition is that there is this massive human capital and there are when we're talking about oil and gas they have very high tech models they know how to use things like the cloud and computing on the edge and these are things that they know because they have to do that in order to produce the hydrocarbon resources that we're producing today. And when we talk about geothermal, things like enhanced geothermal systems, figuring out how to how to produce a reservoir, how to how to physically make a reservoir in the subsurface, and then how to produce the heat and energy from that. These are problems that are are very relatable to modern oil and gas production and and utilizing that already existing knowledge base is is so important because it it would help us 
through this process of reducing our carbon footprints while while also still being able to grow as a society putting more electricity onto the grid and still being able to be globalized as we are today so i wanted to ask with with that whole idea what kind of what kind of um i guess what are the main main benefits and the key key improvements if you will that this investment from repsol allows allows you guys to do um i uh, so i you know i repsol as a as a as a brand as a as a as a capitalized institution as a global network um and as a as a company that has such a huge huge base of human capital is a a, a huge help for hecate it opens it opens up a lot of doors and and helps us think about our projects in a in a very constructive and and thoughtful way um so the the other thing that you know repsol has that that helps hecate is it has a a as i mentioned a a, a incredibly well capitalized um balance sheet so it allows us to do the grunt work of development which is expensive <laughs> you know a lot of projects i would say most projects have to die three times before they live so when you get into those death cycles of projects it's never for free right in the united states you have interconnection deposits which are in the millions of dollars you have option payments to landowners you have all of the work that goes into creating a permit package for that local jurisdiction shaking hands at the local at the local meetings figuring out how to sell the power once it actually is built if it's built and so having an investor like repsol in the company is incredibly helpful for the long duration of of development projects um it's not this is this type of work is not for the faint of heart and that's another challenge that we face globally as we get into a decarbonized world is the the sheer effort that is involved to get to where we are today to where we need to be by 2050 some of the projects i work on have been in development for nearly 10 years and there are 60 megawatt projects so if you if you put it in the grand scheme of things there are still 2 terawatts of coal power plants that are operating in the world and it's taken nearly 10 years to get to a permit application for one of the projects i worked on i i i work on right now so if you do the math like if we were to replace all of the coal power plants in the world with solar or wind or geothermal um the 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 gargantuan effort that's before us is just it's 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 mind-boggling for me sometimes so i i think with a group like repsol that has 
been a in a well-established company for decades, has an incredibly well-funded ba- um, balance sheet and and is well-capitalized, um, and has a, a, a broad exposure into very, very difficult projects that can help support our on-the-ground efforts domestically. It's a it's a really good really good place to be. Yes, that is a that's those are some wild numbers taking 10 years just to get to the the permits to allow you to build a 60 megawatt solar you said solar uh power plant, right? Yep. And I I can only imagine that for for things like wind or things like hydro, they would be an even longer duration. So the idea of it, it, it's almost, I hate to be a bummer here, but it almost sounds, and I hate to use this word, but it almost sounds impossible to be hitting these, these very lofty uh, renewable energy goals in the next 20 or 30 years. That's why, Joe, we need all of the oil and gas majors to transition immediately to renewables. <laughs> you know, hey, put but 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 and I don't I don't bring up those those numbers to to be scary, but I I, I the reason I, I like to to talk about those numbers is because it helps frame people's minds. Right now, I feel like a lot of people, and not to anybody's fault, think that you know some of these things are are overdone, or you know it's it's not really as bad as people talk about. Um, primarily because they're they're not in the industry like I am, right? I have I have no idea what certain things are or aren't in a medical field, or you know, in a, in a plumbing field, right? I, I don't know those things cause I'm not in the industry, but if you can present some things that are, are digestible, um, to, to really give people the right frame of mind, I think that helps. Right. So to give the example of, of the, the coal operational projects in the world, two terawatts. So what we really need to do is replace all of that two terawatts um, which is I- incredibly difficult in and of itself, right? But what we really need is three, five times that because as we continue to electrify our worlds through by the transition to renewable power to you know, power our cars, power our industries, power our light and heavy-duty vehicles, um, now we're talking about not... 30,000 times of the 60 megawatt project that I mentioned, we're talking about 100,000 of those projects. So when, when, when we talk about human capital that is 100% in the oil and gas network, incredible people work in these, in these industries and these companies, 100,000 of the um, 60 megawatt project that I worked on are required to get to a, a, a clean grid just from the coal perspective. We haven't even talked about gas, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. just a, a really, really challenging feat, but you know, I, I, it's an all hands on deck period of time. And um, I'd say that so people can start recognizing that there are some things that 
we could all do to start helping the transition and 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 get there as fast as we can. Yes. Yep. And I think that that definitely helps putting that in perspective and to think about the the idea of 100,000 of these projects. And I I think to go back to to geothermal and oil and gas, that's something that that we talk about right now with with trying to make geothermal anywhere and comparing it to oil and gas. Last year there were only a handful of geothermal wells drilled. I think the number was actually was 12. Whereas oil and gas wells, those are those are in the tens of thousands of wells drilled each year at any at any one time even even in the in the heart of the COVID-19 pandemic in the summer of 2020, there were still 230 drilling rigs going at once. So the idea that there's 10 times the number of drilling rigs in the, in the lowest consumption timeframe in the recent past is, is still a, just that number is pretty impressive on the scale of oil and gas. And now we're at, now it's it's the summer of 2021 and we're we're around 5 or 600 drilling rigs so i think it the the points you make of of the manpower and the the size of the oil and gas industry is is really one of almost the key one of the most important parts of actually doing this this shift into a a fully renewable grid or or hitting these renewable energy standards. So we are we are quickly running out of time. I there there are multiple other questions that I want to ask you and I'm going to have to get you on here again for another show. So one one hot button issue with solar since we've been talking about solar a lot the the idea that that a lot of the solar panels are manufactured in china and anybody who is a i guess a an opponent of solar will point that out they'll point out that the majority 62 percent of energy generation in china is from coal and they will discuss all of the other the other potential harmful impacts to the environment of of manufacturing in China. So I'm just curious, I would imagine you deal with that on a on a semi-frequent basis. What is your what's your answer for those kind of those kind of uh naysayers per se? Yeah, I, it, it's no secret that um China represents I believe the number now is about three quarters, three quarters, 40%. So three quarters of the solar market, of the supply market, all of the wafers, three quarters of the battery market, and then 40% of the, the wind turbine market. From the, and I'm talking about the equipment side. I think, mm-hmm. I think, I think that's a, that's a, fairly well understood, um, you know, metric for, for the industry there, there 
of the 75% of the wafers that are manufactured in China, um, there's a, there is a percentage that, which we, which has been, um, highlighted recently in, in, in the press that comes from forced labor areas and, and at Hecate, you know, we, we would never support forced labor. And I think any company that is legitimately in, in, in the solar industry would, would say the same, right. And because they're, you know, you don't want to support any, any type of, of, of business that, that has forced labor. Um, that's not to say that all 75% comes from forced labor. So in the United States, there's a rigorous customs process to check, to see where, where panels come from, to make sure they were procured, um, properly and and that they they have all of the standards that the u.s government has put in place for for procurement of of foreign goods so you know we we very much rely on the on the u.s government to monitor those types of things because we're doing all the work on the ground to get these projects off the ground um that you know it, it's it's very challenging for us to even though actually I should say we, we do go to China once a, every year for about a month, a year, our senior management goes to all the facilities that, that Hecate procures panels from, um, to, to meet the owners and understand the process. So, you know, that, that's unique, I would say in the market. I think, I think the other thing that is important here outside of, you know, the U S government really monitoring everything that happens from, from foreign goods is that does anybody have these types of concerns when they, they, they pick up their cell phone or they buy something frivolous on Amazon or, or Walmart? Um, you know, we, 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 we're in this cancel culture, cancel culture now. And I, I think that it's all helpful to the extent it provides a, a valuable end, end product, but if the valuable end product is is just to be um, uh, loud um, and not fully understand the, the situation, then I don't know if that's helpful. Um, you know, we we work very very hard to find the right types of solar manufacturers. By the way, we we work a lot with India. We work a lot with South Korea with their solar manufacturers and equipment providers. Um, and we have a, a tremendous group in the United States and Canada that also provides solar wafers. So it's not a one-stop shop in China, but also I think the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, don't just question the solar market, question everything if that's the goal. Yeah, I think that's a, a great answer and definitely something that we really need to we need to be considering because as we get into more technology, as we are getting a one-click buy option wherever we are on the internet, I think, as you point out, we should be, if we want to sit there and question the the ethical nature of a product, we do need to really look at the entire life cycle of every single product. And I am, I am anti-cancel culture. I think really what we need to be doing is getting in the weeds as as much as beneficial and 
really talking about these kind of things because many people probably don't think about where the solar panels are coming from. They care about the fact that they're generating green energy and it's not the other layers of intricacy are not thought about. But let's let's move on. Two quick questions. These are the final questions. What is the most important book you've ever read? Oh, Project Drawdown. Um, <clears throat> I am a through and through environmental uh, junkie advocate, uh, weirdo, and Project Drawdown just really was able to center my mind on the very, very important things that we can do to decarbonize. Um, and that has led me to become a heat pump fanatic and not only a heat pump fanatic, but a, a, a heat pump fanatic that uses any refrigerant that is not, uh, you know, an H HFC, um, but is more of a natural refrigerant, like a propane and even a water. They have heat pumps that use water now, um, as the, as the working fluid. So project drawdown, it, for those of you that are, you know, interested in, in the most important things you can do to decarbonize. It's a, it's an incredible book written by scientists, supports the scientist community, but is also updated frequently and, um, and really is a beautiful way to, to, to research and understand these, these important sectors that could help us decarbonize. Very cool. That sounds like a great book and I'm going to need to add it to my reading list. Now, the, the final question for you, when will we reach net zero oh. as a society? Uh, well, <clears throat> I have a, a, a very close friend who, um, he's the head of ESG at an at a investment bank and, you know, PhD at Oxford and in economics. And, and he, he has a different view than I do because I am a, an eternal optimist. I need to be an eternal optimist to be a developer. I, I don't think, and my, my view has changed. I, I, I don't think we will hit net zero by 2050 because of where we are and the rate at which we have decarbonized. To put it, to put it one way, and this came from the chief economist from BP, um, we need to decarbonize at the rate we decarbonized during the pandemic for the full year for 30 years straight in order to get to net zero. And we're not going to be able to shut down the world 30 times over. It's never going to happen. It's just not going to happen, right? The, 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 the sheer effort that is required that I mentioned earlier is, is incredibly challenging. Um, and when we think about shutting down the world and having that amount of decarbonization take place in one year and repeating it 30 times over is, is just, it's mind, mind boggling. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, go ahead. And I think that's a, a really good point that none of us necessarily enjoyed being on lockdown, being stuck at our houses, being, having a, an economy shut down, but that's what it would take. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
that's what it would take to reach net zero. And that is, I, I feel like that should be motivation for all of us to say, if you don't want to live in a pandemic for the next 30 years or a pseudo pandemic, then let's figure out solutions. And, and you have to take, you have to take out the, the, you have to take out any other option for, for humans because you, you have to make it easy for humans. You can't, I, I would get into a lot of problems emotionally because I, you know, I'd be with friends and they, they, they wouldn't recycle or, or they, they wouldn't consider buying an EV when they bought a new car. And, and that's not their fault, right? It's, 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 I'm, I'm unique. And, and those that are, um, supportive of, of transitions are unique, but just because somebody is a consumer doesn't make them a bad person. You need governments need to provide the right policy and incentives and, and, and also create the, the right mechanisms for consumers and citizens and humans to, to do these things by nature and just uh, by second nature, not, not because of choice. Um, so I, I think it's going to be very challenging. Um, I'm very hopeful. I know there's a tremendous amount of amazing technologies that are on the horizon related to storage. We're seeing investments like Repsol enter a U.S. renewable power group. Um, and the, the rate at which solar and wind has, has been adopted globally is, is incredibly, incredibly helpful and, and, and comforting. Um, but we, we have a long way to go and, um, I, I hope, I hope more people will, will join, join the fight, join the cause and, and bear their arms to combat global, global climate change. Yep. That, that is a, a good call to, to action. Now, typically you would get to ask me one question, but we are, we are down to three minutes. Do you, do you have a quick question for me? I do, Joe. Um, I know you are a geologist by training, and I'm curious where where you see the geothermal market moving and what new things you may see in that market these days that are exciting to you. Yep. So things that are really exciting to me as... I think as as we probably have a a love for things like recycling and for nature and and reusing one of the things that I work on with with the company I'm at Petrolearn is reusing oil and gas wells for geothermal. So that's one thing I'm really excited about. I feel like that is a a low-hanging fruit that is readily accessible. It's just a matter of of really figuring out the semantics. And so there's that in say 10, 20, 30 years, ideas like enhanced geothermal systems and geothermal anywhere. I feel like those will become a major part of the energy grid. I, I do think we still have some time in for those technologies to mature. And I also think there needs to be a larger consumer buy-in because it, they are expensive and it is going to cost a it's going to cost more for that electricity unless we have 20 30 years experience to start knocking down those prices and that's just 
I feel like that's the maturity of the industry. It needs to, EGS needs to mature more before it can be competitive with natural gas and coal. And the other way around that is for consumers to be willing to pay more now in hopes that it'll drop in price later. So that's that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. With yeah, I agree. So with that, where can people find you if you and and Hecate Energy if they want to learn more? Uh Hecate Energy's website uh is a, a common catch all and if um it's hecateenergy.com, H E C A T E energy.com. All right. Well, thank you, Alex, for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this episode of the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry as a whole, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or go to OGGN.com to check out all of our other podcasts. Thank you guys again for joining us. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon, but high energy. Thanks, everybody. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Low Carbon Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.